Well, Chris Voss is the former lead hostage negotiator for the FBI, and he had many years of experience negotiating with terrorists and uh, kidnappers and bank robbers in various parts of the world. And uh, what he learned from dealing with these hostile people, he condensed into a book and a course that he teaches, and he's actually started a company that trains people on negotiation. And uh, he has a few principles that he learned that he shares with people, and one of them is um, to get people to say, that's right. Instead of, you know, when you're talking to them, you don't want them to say, you're right, because that's kind of a phrase people use when they want the conversation, and you're right, you're right, you're right, but they don't actually want to change. But if you, if you get them to say, that's right, then they have resonated, they understand that you know what they're talking about, and they agree with you. Another principle is to ask calibrated, open-ended questions that make them think of the solution. So if a terrorist says to you, I want $100,000, and I want it in six hours, and I want a helicopter, you respond by saying, now how am I supposed to do that in such short notice? And that now becomes their problem. And, and whatever they say, you just keep coming back. How am I supposed to do that? Another principle is to use the late night FM DJ voice with a downward inflection when you want to signal that there's going to be no discussion on this point. Uh, number four is what he calls the accusation audit. You, you throw out the accusations they're going to have against you before they can do it. So you start off by saying, you know, I know this is going to sound unreasonable. You're going to call me a liar for not keeping my previous commitments. You're going to think I'm taking advantage of you. You're going to believe I'm manipulative. You just throw all of those things out there, and then you tell them the bad news that you can no longer deliver what you said you were able to do. Um, and then one of the other principles that I found interesting is to remember that terrorists have mothers too. And he tells a story about how he was um, negotiating for I think it was a, a Christian missionary that had been taken hostage with some terrorists, and, and he said to, to, through the interpreter to, to tell the terrorist, how, um, how do we give his mom assurance that he's even alive, or that he's going to be alive if we pay him this money? And the terrorist responded, you told his mother about this? And then he said, you tell his mom he's going to be fine. And to get that kind of assurance of the safety of the, the hostage is really unheard of. And um, so you, you bring up the, the guy's mom, and, and he'll, he'll do that. Um, but one of the things he says you need to figure out when you're dealing with people that want to ransom is what do they really want? What do they really want? So in Haiti, for example, Haiti has the highest rate of kidnapping anywhere in the world. Um, tourists are kidnapped almost every week in Haiti. And... What he found out was that it's this group of men that really have nothing better to do except uh, drink and party with their friends. And what he noticed is that the, the abductions happen on a Monday or a Tuesday, and they're resolved by a Thursday or Friday. And when the, when the kidnapping happens, there's always an outrageous amount, $100,000 or more that they want from the victim's family, and then Voss gets called in to negotiate, and what he knows they really want is they just want to have a party on Friday night where they can all get drunk. So he negotiates them down. From, what he does is he just drags out the negotiation. And the bargaining just goes on for days and days and days until it's about to fall through on a Thursday night. And then he offers them $1,000. And sometimes he'll throw in a CD player as well. 
And then they've gone from $100,000 down to, sure, just give us $1,000 in the CD player and, uh, and we'll take it. Why? Because all they want to do is party. And, and so this happens on a near weekly basis where his company will negotiate terrorists down from hundreds of thousands of dollars down to just a few hundred dollars sometimes to pay for their little party so that these victims can go home. It works every time. Well, what we see tonight is a man negotiating with God, a man who strikes a bargain with God, but the question is whether God is involved in the negotiation at all. He doesn't have any idea what God really wants. And so he's offering something to God that God doesn't even want. And this leads him to make a tragic error that costs him the life of his own daughter. So turn in your Bibles to the days that the judges ruled Israel, chapter 11. The book of Judges 11, we're going to learn about Jephthah. Now, we, we met Jephthah last week. And if you weren't here last week, just to remind you, Jephthah had a, an interesting upbringing that paralleled something that was happening in the history of Israel. So Israel, if you know the book of Judges by now, you'll know that there's this cycle of turning towards idols, God allowing foreign nations to attack them so that they are driven to despair and desperation, so that they repent of their sins and call out for deliverance, so that God raises up a deliverer who then chases out the, the nations that are afflicting Israel, and then there's a period of peace and worship of Yahweh until they fall back into the same pattern and they turn their back on God and go back to the idols. And at one point, God says to them, they come and they cry out to God, please deliver us. And God says, you have chosen the gods of these foreign people. Go cry out to them and let them save you. And then they get really desperate. Well, this is the first time they've cried out to God. And he basically said, no, you need to be consistent and just keep with the idols you've chosen. And then they really repent and they put those idols away. And God raises up Jephthah. And he raises up Jephthah for a very specific reason, because of his own background. So Jephthah was a Gileadite. He was the, the son of the man named Gilead, so kind of old money, again, an established family. But he was not one of the legitimate sons. He was the son of Gilead and, um, and a prostitute. And so he is, when Gilead dies his brothers cut him out of the inheritance and say, you're not legitimate, you don't get any of the inheritance, and they drive him out. And he goes and he lives in the wilderness and he, he becomes a military leader like a freedom fighter, him and his band of men that live with him. And when things get very, very desperate and Israel has now called out to God, he raises up this deliverer. The people of Gilead go to Jephthah and say, we want you, because now you've proven that you can live in the wilderness and have a little army and be successful. We want you to come and lead our military and deliver us from the foreign nations. And Jephthah says, no. He says, you need to be consistent. You chased me away. You rejected me. And now, suddenly, you want me to be your leader? And then he negotiates with them. And he says, well, I will come and be your leader, but I want more than that. I want to be your chieftain. I want to be the head, not just of the military, but of the whole clan. And they say, yes. I mean, they're pretty desperate. And so you see how there's that parallel what's happening with Jephthah and his brothers and the town that rejected him become desperate for him and finally they're willing to give whatever it takes and that's what's happening with Israel. So that's kind of where we find ourselves in our narrative. Um, Jephthah we saw last week, we introduced this part of what he did um, and, and this week we're going to drill down and, and draw some principles out of it but in the story what happens is Jephthah makes a bargain with God. 
but God isn't part of this. Jephthah just makes this vow and says to God, I'm, we're a minority, we're going up against this massive army, I'm going to need supernatural help, therefore, and then he makes this bargain. He says, if you give me the victory over the foreign armies, I will sacrifice a burnt offering to you, whatever comes out of my house when I get back. And so what he's doing here is he's kind of telling God, look, I know you're in control. You can bring anything you want out of that house and whatever it is, no matter how expensive it is, if it's a, a lamb or a, a whatever, I will, I will burn it as an offering to you. And then he goes and he leads Israel in battle. And guess what? They win. Of course they win. That was the whole point of God raising up this deliverer was that he was going to supernaturally help him win. And so he comes back. And as he comes back, this tragic thing happens. So let me read for you from verse 30 to 40 to reorient ourselves. I'll pick it up in verse 29. Um, Then the spirit of Yahweh was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh and said, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then Whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and Yahweh gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aruar to the neighborhood of Manith, 20 cities as far as Ebel Kerimim, with a great Blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances, and she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to Yahweh. And I cannot take back my vow. She said to him, My father, you've opened your mouth to Yahweh. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that Yahweh has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go and then he sent her away for two months and she departed and she and her companions and they wept for her virginity on the mountains and at the end of two months she returned to her father who did with her according to his vow that he had made and she had never known a man and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Well, tonight we're going to look at two types of vows, two types of vows, so that you will guard against rash vows, like the one that Jephthah made. Two types of vows, vows you can't keep and shouldn't keep, and then vows you can keep and should keep. So it starts off in this verse 30 with this vow that Jephthah declares to Yahweh, if you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house uh, when I return in peace from the Ammonites, shall be Yahweh's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah makes a vow, a verbal, conditional contract. If this, then that. 
There's consideration here for both parties. You'll get the burnt offering. I'll get the victory. And there's this legally binding agreement between these two parties from Jephthah's point of view. When you make a vow to the Lord, that's what you're saying. I promise I'm going to do this. I'm committing myself to do this. And so he sets this if-then conditional contract up. And as you see what happens, it backfires badly. Now, there's some discussion among the commentators about whether or not he intended this to include a human being. Obviously, in his mind, it includes whatever comes out. But actually, the Hebrew says whoever as well. Uh, No, sorry, the Hebrew does say whatever. But in the context, it can reply to whoever. And what happens is um, it seems like he's offering to sacrifice one of his servants or, or somebody like that. And this is a pagan idea that was, as we heard about the god Shemosh this morning, the Moabite god, that he, people would get into um, uh, covenants with him. The Ammonites also worshipped Shemosh. And so the Ammonites are the enemies. And it shows you how, how far gone Israel has got so that they don't even know that this is not what God wants. Well, you, remember, you can't read the book of Judges and think, oh, here's Jephthah, I need to be like Jephthah. You basically read the book of Judges to always see what is the wrong thing to do. Because the theme of the book of Judges is there's no king in Israel and everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Not what's right in God's eyes. So Jephthah thinks what he's doing is the right thing. There are passages in the Bible that say if you vow to God, you must pay that vow. We'll look at those later. And so he has this great integrity that he's going to do whatever it does, uh, whatever comes out of his house, and then what comes out of his house is his daughter. And notice he doesn't take any blame for it, does he? He says, you have brought me low for coming out of my house, like she should know. All she knows is that dad's coming home and he's alive, and she comes out with her tambourines. She comes out with it, and she's, she's probably, you know, we're going to guess in early teens, because she's not married yet, and that's, that's what she mourns about. So that's, then she says to her dad, what you've done is you've made this commitment, so we have to go through with it. So she thinks her dad's doing the right thing by keeping his vow. Because nobody's consulting what God wants here. They're only thinking, this is how our culture functions. You make a vow, you've got to keep it. Human sacrifice is part of our culture now as well, because we're so integrated with the world, with the Ammonites and the, the Moabites. So she thinks she's doing the right thing. So everyone here has a code. They've got integrity. But their code and their integrity is based on misinformation of what is right. And we see that today, don't we? We see people who think, well, being tolerant and accepting of any lifestyle choice is a good and loving thing to do. And if you don't do that, you're being judgmental. You're the one in the wrong. And what we're saying there is our world, our culture has established what's right and wrong and we need to to go along with that otherwise we're the bad guy. Nobody's asking what does God say is right and wrong. The best thing for anybody in any lifestyle choice is to tell them what God thinks of it. And stand up with what God thinks of it because God is the one that's going to judge. And so here we have this father, we have this daughter. They think what they're doing is the right thing. They think that they're honoring God. Paul will say that there were people that ha- in the future that have a, a zeal for God, but without knowledge. A zeal for God, but without knowledge. There's so many people today who think that they're spiritual. They think that they're honoring God, but they don't know his word. And so they have this zeal, but it's 
It's off kilter. You, you see this often with men who stand up for feminists. Men, feminist men. Think about that for a moment, men. <laughs> but they, what they're thinking is, we're siding with the woman. We want women to have equal rights. Well, that's not feminism. That's just, that's just humanity there. Of course, they should have equal rights. But the question is, role, function, in the family, in the church, in these things, you think that you're doing what's good by standing up for their feminist viewpoints, but you haven't asked what God says is good for society, what God says is good for his holiness and for our good and for the good of the family and the good of the church. So he sacrifices her. Now, some of the commentators will try to, they're like, it can't be that Jephthah does this thing because later in the book of Hebrews, he's listed as one of the men of great faith. Remember, I've taught you this, that there's no such thing as a flat character in the Bible. These are real people. These aren't characters that are written. You know, like the fairy godmother is good and the evil stepsisters of Cinderella are bad. That's not how real life works. Everybody is good and bad. There are no perfect people. And so Jephthah, what he did here is atrocious and abominable, but he did have great faith in God, which set him apart from a lot of people, and that is what the book of Hebrews is talking about, his faith that God was able to do these things. And we'll, we're going to have to deal with this even more when we get to Samson. So let's just put that on the back burner because Samson is just, you don't want your kids to turn out like Samson. Um, but anyway, and he's also in the list there. So we'll, we'll get to that later. But the commentators who try to say that no, what, what Jephthah did was Instead of a burnt offering, he offered her as a perpetual virgin to the Lord. In other words, you can't get married now. Kind of like when you think of a nun, um, a woman that is committed to celibacy for the rest of her life for the sake of the vows that she takes to the Lord. So some people say that's what's happening, and then they go to this little, uh, this little concession she asks of her dad, please let me go for two months into the mountains and mourn my virginity. So they say, you see, that's what she's mourning. She's not mourning her life. She's mourning the fact that she's never going to be married. And this is a big deal for Jephthah because not only is she his only daughter, she is his only child, which means if she dies without an heir, his line stops and wipes out all future generations. So this is a big tragedy in Israel, and so that's what everybody's mourning. Well, not really. There were other women who went their entire lives without being married, without bearing children, and nobody was lamenting for them four days every year. Also, the text specifically says that he did according to the vow that he made. So, he did what he said he was going to do. He burnt her as a burnt offering. That's the word there. It's the word for holocaust. That's what happened. He burnt her. He killed her. And her main concern, which you understand from a young woman's point of view, is, I mean, I've I've been there too, you know, you're a young man, you're like, Lord, I want you to come back, and, but just maybe after I get married, <laughs> you know, because <laughs> you just think of marriage as the greatest thing. It's not, by the way, Jesus coming back is the greatest thing, but I understand I've been there where you think it's the greatest thing, and so she's like, I don't even mind dying, what I mind is dying before I get married, so I'm going to go and mourn that, but anyway, so this is what happens. So the question we are stuck with tonight is this, is what Jephthah did Right? That's what the commentators are trying to do is this, well, he kept his vow to the Lord, but human sacrifice isn't right, so we have to make something that he did that was right. And I want to free you of the obligation to try to justify what the people in the book of Judges are doing. It's going to get harder and harder every chapter. No, what he did was wrong. 
Now, we make vows today. We don't usually use that terminology. We call them contracts. You ever been in, come into a contract with someone, with your employer? We call them telephone bills, restaurant checks. It's always fascinated me how that works, that you only pay after you've eaten. Um, you would think that people would just dine and dash, you know, ticket walking, right? That that would just be an epidemic. But there's, there's a code. You understand the societal code. I've made a promise to pay for this food. We call them verbal contracts. We call them promises. We call them agreements. We call them commitments. But really, they're vows. They're a, a verbally binding commitment that you are making. Sometimes we call them clothing accounts. You don't think of that, do you? But when you buy something on credit, you are making a promise to pay for something with money you don't have. And they're giving it to you, saying, we trust you. Well, actually, we're going to hound you until you wish you were dead if you don't pay for this. But when we go to courts, we are put under oath to swear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. At, bedding, at weddings, we come up with vows at weddings, don't we? Sickness and in health, richer or poorer. We still make vows today. So it behooves us to, to understand how to make vows. So no, Jephthah, what Jephthah did was wrong. What he should have done is he should not have treated God like a pagan God by making the vow in the first place. Then, after he made the rash pagan vow, he should have stopped sinning by not murdering his daughter. I think we can all agree that the right move here is to not kill the little girl who did nothing wrong. Well, then he would have broken his vow. Yeah, whoop-de-doo. You don't fix a sin with another sin. Everybody knows this from two wrongs don't make a right. You can't fix a sin with another sin. Tom always gives me this wisdom. If you find yourself in a hole, the first thing you do is... Stop digging. You have made foolish decisions in your life. You have made bad commitments. You have got yourself into a situation that is now all around bad. Stop making more bad decisions trying to get out of the bad decision you're in. He should have stopped. He should have repented. He should have not kept his vow. If anything, he should have offered himself as a substitute. I mean, that still would have been wrong, but at least it's better than murder. So the first thing that you do when you realize you've sinned is you stop sinning and you repent. Now, as I said, first prize is that he should never have made the vow to begin with. In the New Testament, we hear from James, chapter 4, verse 13. James says this. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. See what he's saying? He's saying you cannot make a commitment, a plan about the future because you don't have that kind of authority. Only God does. You can make plans, but you've got to make them in pencil. If the Lord wills. One of the great Top Gun quotes of all time is, Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. That's what we're doing. 
your ego is writing a check you can't cash. You're saying, I'm going to do this thing. You're not in charge of the future. So don't write checks that you can't cash. Don't make commitments that you're not in control of. Don't make dumb vows to begin with. And James gives a solution. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. You know, the Christians in the 1700s, whenever they made a statement about the future, they would put the letters DV. So they would say, I will see you next summer, DV. DV is Latin for Deo Volente, God willing. And they get it from this passage, from the Latin translation of this passage. You ought to say Deo Volente if you make a statement about your commitment to do something in the future. If God wills, I will breathe and be alive to give you my commitment, keep my commitment. So I have an attitude of humility and speech that reflects that. So the, the trick is to be careful about how you word your commitments. Remember, we said we're looking at two types of vows. These are vows that you can't and shouldn't keep. That's the first type of vow. Don't make a vow like Jephthah, one that you can't keep that you're not in control of, you don't know what's going to come out of there. Uh, so he shouldn't have made that vow to begin with. So that's the best thing to do. Is just d never get yourself into a situation where now you have to figure out, well, I, I, I promised this person I was going to do this, but now my child has this need to go to the hospital right now. <laughs> so what do I do? No, child, I'm going to leave you to die because I made a commitment to meet this person at the movies. Well, no, you should just have said and you can't say, I'll meet you at the movies at this time, you know, if my kid isn't dying, if I'm not dying, if the world isn't coming to an end, you know, if my house isn't over, you can't do that. So all you say is, if the Lord wills, to the best of my ability, as far as I know, you know, those types, types of phrases, if it's in my power, barring traffic and unforeseen problems, it's not just about persnickety language, it's a worldview. It's a worldview that communicates to people that you understand we're not in control. In James 5.12, James says, Above all, my brothers, do not swear by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. James lived with Jesus. This is James is Jesus' half-brother. They lived in the same home. James grew up. This would have left an impact on James that when Jesus spoke, what he said, he meant. We tend to say, no, 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 I promise, I promise I'm going to do it. Well, why do you have to say that? Because there's other things that you've said that people know you haven't followed through on, and now you want to show this is one you are going to follow through on. How about being the kind of person that whatever you say, you follow through on? You know, you've got people like that in your life. There are people in my life, if they say to me, um, can I borrow that book? I'll return it by next Tuesday. I know that they will. And then there's the rest of you. Um, <laughs> let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Jesus explains in the Sermon on the Mount exactly what this kind of foolish vow looks like, one that you're not in control of. Matthew 5.33, he says, Again, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool 
or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Wow. So what Jesus is saying here is, you know what an oath is? It's, you know, I swear on my mother's grave. You know, I, I, I promise on the whatever. And what they would do is, I promise by heaven. I will call heaven as a witness. And he says, heaven's not yours. It's God's. Well, I call earth as a witness. That's not yours either. That's also God's. Well, what's mine? Uh, my head. I call my head as a witness. Not even your head is a witness because you're not even in control of your hair. God is. Jesus is just saying there is nothing that you can swear by because God owns everything and is in charge of everything. And you are in charge of nothing. So don't make an oath on something. Just say yes or no. Now, a little footnote. He's not saying you can't take the oath in court to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. This brings us to our second point. The question is, can a Christian make any kind of oath after Jesus just said, don't make any kind of oath? Well, the first vow that we saw was vows that you can't keep and therefore you shouldn't keep them. So don't make any kind of oath about anything that you can't keep. But there is a type of vow that you may make. You don't make it on heaven or earth or anything else. You just say it, yes or no. And this is what you say yes or no about, vows that you can keep and should keep. And for this, we're going to have to go to Ecclesiastes. We don't see any of these in, um, in Judges, unfortunately, but in Ecclesiastes. So the book of Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, chapter 5. Because sometimes Christians have like a conscience issue about taking an oath of office or pledging allegiance or taking an oath to tell the truth in church, and I just want to alleviate you of that um, burden. You can make those kinds of vows. Otherwise, what, what would a wedding be like? Do you promise to stand by her for richer or poorer, sickness and health, and you say, well, I'm a Christian, so no, I can't make that promise. It's not going to make for a very romantic wedding ceremony, is it? No, you're making a vow because this is a vow that you can keep, and this is a vow that you should keep. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2. Do not be rash with your mouth. Well, there you go. That's the whole sermon in one phrase. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. That is just great advice all around, people. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. And when you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it, for he, paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. So let me stop there for a moment. This is, this is the verse that Jesus is referring to when he says, you've heard it of old, pay your vow to the Lord. And this is true. This is a biblical principle. Let your words be few. Don't be hasty. Don't just shoot off your mouth in front of God. But when you make a commitment to God, you keep that commitment. But then he goes on, verse 5. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? When dreams increase and words grow many, there's vanity. But God is the one that you must fear. So he's talking about people that are making plans about the future here. 
and uh, just kind of spouting off their words and invoking God and bringing God into all of this. And he's saying, you need to, you need to watch, watch your mouth. Let your words be few. Let them be careful. And if you say you're going to do something, you're going to do it. Better that you just don't commit than commit and then break that commitment to God. And so now you've got the Jephthah situation. You can see why Jephthah is so tortured because this principle was very important in their culture that you do what you say you're going to do. So you say something, it leads you to a place where you're going to sin. Now you feel like you have to sin to keep your vow. But that's how important vows were to them. And you, and you get the sense from Solomon here. This is a vow that you have to keep. So there are vows that you can keep, but which ones are them? The ones that you're actually able to keep. And then you need to keep them. So make it carefully. Rather don't make it if you don't think you can keep it. But there's some vows that you can keep and you must. For example, your vow to be faithful to your spouse on your wedding day. That is a good vow. That's the point of the wedding. That you are making a public profession in front of witnesses that you are committing to this one person. That is a vow that you must keep. And in our society, that is a vow that has been eroded, hasn't it? That now, people get married, Christians get married, and they sit down with a lawyer to have a prenuptial agreement and basically figure out the terms of their divorce before they even get married. And unfortunately, in some circumstances, that's actually wise because of how flimsy our vows are. And so what Solomon would tell you is, rather don't get married. Doesn't... Doesn't Jesus say that in Matthew 19? When the disciples ask him, uh, can we divorce our wives for any reason? And he says, no. That God has, what God has bound, let no man separate. And except for sexual immorality, the person being adulterous, you can't divorce them. And what is their response? <laughs> well, then it's better not to be married, they say to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 marriage isn't fantastic. I'm sorry, I overspoke. He says, yeah, that's true, but not everybody can handle that. So be careful when you get married. Marry the right person. But when you make that vow, you're making a vow and you better keep it. If you are on the witness stand and they swear you to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you shouldn't bat an eyelid. Of course you're going to make that vow. And then keep it. You see, that's something you're in control of. You are in control of whether you tell the truth. So you can make that commitment. You are in control of whether or not you are faithful to your spouse. So you can make that commitment. And in both those cases, you need to keep them. So if you make a, sign a contract to pay your mortgage, you better pay that. Which is why, if you need counsel and that type of thing, you need to put down large down payments on anything that you buy. Why? So that you can sell it quickly, give it back without any repercussions if you need to. This whole, you know, these ninja loans that they came out with, no income, no job, no down payment, no nothing. We'll just give you a bunch of money. Well, that's what started the economic crisis in 2008 because the people were making, writing checks their bodies couldn't cash. If you make a commitment to tithe to the Lord's work, you better do it. And trust that he's going to meet your needs. There are commitments you can make. These are the commitments you should make. 
one more, Psalm 15, because you're like, well, sometimes I've made commitments and now I'm stuck in it and it's, it's just really, it's going to really, really saddle me with this burden for years and years to pay off this debt rather than just make it disappear through bankruptcy or whatever. Psalm 15, verse 1. O Yahweh, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? Psalm 15 is basically, what is the portrait of a righteous man? Verse 2, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right. And verse 4, in whose eyes a vile person is despised and who honors those who fear the Lord and who swears to his own hurt and does not change. There it is. Psalm 15, verse 4. One of the signs of godliness is that you, if you swear to do something, you commit to do something, that even if it hurts you to keep it, you keep it. Man, I wish I could get out of this commitment that I made. Something so much better has come up. Doesn't matter. My yes is yes. I have sworn to my own hurt. I've seen people do that. I've seen people follow through on commitments that have been a massive burden on them where they could easily have just wiped their hands of it and walked away. But because of their integrity and their desire to be a good Christian witness, they have shouldered that burden. Why? Because they said they would. So we started off this this little two-part mini-series with the story of Martin Luther. Remember that? Martin Luther was being struck by lightning. Well, he was being chased in a lightning storm by lightning. And that's what he thought. And so he said, St. Anne, I'll be a monk if you save me. And he survived the lightning storm. And so he dropped out of law school and became a monk because he had to keep his vow to St. Anne. But Martin Luther teaches us something else because once he realized the truth and studied God's word and became saved and became a believer and started the Reformation, one of the things he realized is These vows that I make are stupid. I shouldn't have made them. Specifically, the vow of obedience to the Pope, perpetual chastity, and um, poverty, which is a vow that all Catholic priests take. And so you can't get married, you can't own anything, and you have to obey the Pope. And when you realize that the Pope is, in his words, the Antichrist, he realized, well, that was a dumb vow. So you know what he did? He broke it. And when the the Pope sent him a papal bull, an an official edict of something he had to do, he burnt it publicly. I learned my lesson from the St. Anne. Now, the St. Anne vow worked out well for everybody. (laughs) But he realized that was a rash vow that he made, obedience to the Pope. And the other one that he broke was, well, he broke the possessions one too because he wrote books and made money off that. But the, the fun one is that he broke his vow of perpetual chastity and singleness and he married a nun who also broke her vow, Katie von Bora. And uh, the two made a very fiery couple in the Reformation, and there's a wonderful book called Martin Luther Had a Wife that you should definitely read. And it's about them realizing that these vows that they made were rash, foolish vows made under misinformation that they had been given about God and what he wanted. And so they broke those vows to the glory of God. So in summary... What we learned from Jephthah is, and from Luther, is don't ever make a rash vow that could cause you to sin. Secondly, if you have made a rash vow and it's causing you to sin, stop sinning. Repent of that, even if it means breaking the rash vow. Thirdly, only make vows and oaths and promises that are in your power to keep. And then keep them. And that's what we learn. Now, Chris Voss... I told you about Haiti and why the, why the kidnapping rate is so high. 
can you see why the kidnapping rate is so high? Because they keep doing it because people keep paying. That's why the United States government has a policy that the government does not negotiate with terrorists. Because as soon as you give the terrorists what they want, you're teaching other terrorists to come bargain with you too. And so that helped me think through an insight of why God would allow this to happen the way it folded out. Because God could have God could have just circumvented all of this and the first thing that came out of Jephthah's house was his pet gerbil. And then he kills the gerbil and we move on. Why, why did God allow that? And it helps me to understand the policy of the United States government to not negotiate with terrorists. Because imagine God played along and gave him something easy, some little lamb to sacrifice in order to save Jephthah's daughter. What's that going to teach the nation and future deliverers of Israel what they need to do? Remember, this is something that the other nation was doing. That people, when they would go into battle, they would sacrifice their children to Shemosh to guarantee a victory. And so God wanted to show, no, you make this kind of bargain, things are going to go awry and you're going to end up like these pagans. And so perhaps that's the reason God let that happen, so that nobody would ever make a vow like that again because they would be afraid that what happened to Jephthah happened to them. I don't know. But in short, don't make a vow unless you plan to keep it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this reminder from your word. Um, All of us here who believe in Jesus have made a commitment through baptism to die to our old lives and to live to you new lives to Christ. And so I pray that you would give us the strength to do that. Give us the wisdom, the humility, and our attitude for the way we use our words and our language and our commitments. Help us to be faithful to the commitments we have made um, for your glory and for our witness of the power of Christ in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.